Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, we've got Kyle Malmstrom and David Cariani. Gentlemen, how are you? We're doing great, Eric. Great, Eric. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I, uh, it was, it was fun. I got to actually speak with Jonathan from your team earlier and, uh, you guys are just cranking out amazing podcasts. So I, I thank you for letting me be just a small part of this. We appreciate your contributions. All right. So what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to talk about the fascinating world of alternative investments. So part of the reason we're going to talk about this today, Eric, is we incorporate alternative investments in our investment philosophy. We combine it with passive investing and we want to unlock and talk about the different types of alternatives we use and, and how we incorporate them into our client plans uh, from a tax efficiency standpoint, from a risk reward metric standpoint, from an income standpoint. There's just a lot of details uh, with all the different types of alternatives that we want to cover so that our listening audience can get a little bit better idea of, of our approach and how it may work for them. Well, I mean, that was actually my first question. When you say alternative investments, uh, all sorts of things come to mind for me. I mean, I, I, obviously, I don't work in the world that you do, but I'm thinking, you know, moon real estate, um, you know, You're fine far art. Off. Yeah, okay. Well, I have we'll, some of that for you if you'd like some. <laughs> I bet you'll make me a good deal, too, because we're friends. Anyway. It's more expensive to have the side with the light on it. Just so you know. Okay. All right. Well, I'll see what's in my budget. <laughs> uh, okay. So let, let's talk about it. What, what are alternative investments? Well, that's that's uh, a great question. And I, I think the best answer for what, uh, what alternative investments are is really to define what they are not. It's much easier. Okay. So if you think of your traditional stock uh, and bonds uh, that you can go and log on to Charles Schwab or Fidelity or E-Trade, and buy in your account relatively easily with a few clicks. Those are your traditional investments. Anything that falls outside of that scope is technically an alternative investment. So it's a very, very hmm. broad uh, field. Um, more and more things have crept their way into that category as time went by. You know, originally this was, uh, you know, hedge funds and private equity um, things like that that were, you know bought by large institutions and uh, wealthy individuals. And, and now it's really, um, it's really become a very diverse uh, asset class. So why do you incorporate it into the, the work that you do with your clients? I mean, is it just something that people are asking for? Or is it just something that you guys have done a lot of research? And, you know, there's just some really good alternative investments out there? You know, there are just there are incredible benefits um, that can be garnered from including uh, alternative investments in your portfolio. And it's it's academic. It's reality. Uh, there's just a lot of reasons to do it. And I think, you know, we can get deeper into some of those uh, maybe a little bit later on uh, after we kind of set the stage more of, of what we're talking about. I would agree with that. So. In order to set the stage, Dave, you, you mentioned a couple of, of types of alternatives, but I, I would also include, you know, gold. That's a common one that has been around for a really long time. Oh, that's considered an alternative investment? Yeah. 
That falls under the commodities category, which is, you know, one of the one of the main categories under alternatives. In the other one that a lot of people have and a lot of people got uh, very wealthy on in San Diego is real estate. Right. That's mm-hmm. an alternative investment. If you have rental real estate. Now, the type of alternative we're talking about is more of a syndication, uh, which is more institutionalized. But anything that's, again, to what David said, not stocks and bonds is considered an alternative. If you're like my dad, my dad hates the stock market, so uh, he he participates in it, but he 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 doesn't like it. And so alternatives uh, can help some people with, uh, you know, real estate's one of those where people that don't get into stocks and bonds, they just buy real estate. Uh, it's an asset class they're familiar with and they're comfortable with, and they don't get a monthly statement with uh, daily valuations going up and down, and mm-hmm. it's a little bit more suitable for them. So just a little bit of practical. What else we got there, Dave, in terms of different kinds of alternatives? Well, I look Let's go at through kind of the, the list. The, the main food groups, if you will, I see as sort of private equity, private credit, real estate that we talked about, hedge funds, commodities, and then there's a whole slew of other assets that are uh, incorporated in the alternative category. It could be infrastructure investing. Uh, you can invest in a pool of patents and their cash hmm. flow streams. You can invest in litigation outcomes. There's a really, it gets to be a very, very diverse uh, asset class, but I would say the main categories kind of are that private equity, private credit, real estate, hedge funds, and and possibly commodities. That's where you'll find the bulk of the money. Yep. And there's tax liens and fine art and, and just to throw some more in there. But hedge funds also break up into, there's macro strategy, there's quantitative strategies, there's convertible arbitrage, there's distressed credit. So there's and, and to Dave's point, there's main camps of alternatives, and then it splinters into lots of different versions from there. There's a podcast uh, that could be on hedge funds alone, how how uh, kind of crazy they've gotten as far as the different kind of things that they're doing in there. So, so how are most alternatives that we're talking about, Dave, structured? Well, most traditional alternatives sort of the classics that we're talking about are private vehicles so they're either a limited partnership or an llc or sometimes a corporation depending on the type of business uh, that it is and the the investments that they're holding but they are typically private so that means they're not traded on public markets Um, you know you're filling out subscription paperwork um, and investing directly with uh, an investment manager There are um, liquid alternatives that are in the form of uh, listed mutual funds and ETFs and REITs that you can buy on the public markets. And those have really become more common in, let's say, the last 10 years. There was a big move to uh, sort of democratize alternative investments and and get them out there uh, more widely available. Um, But they are different because those listed instruments are more restricted in what they can do because they fall under uh, different regulatory uh, guidelines uh, as they are listed vehicles and the private ones are, are less regulated. They're still likely registered with the SEC, but the rules are far uh, more lenient as to what they can do. And that's why most managers prefer the private vehicles. So the so just real quick on the regulation, that sounds good. Regulation, why wouldn't I want that, Dave? What, what comes <laughs> with regulation? Why wouldn't? I want something to be highly regulated. Well, with regulation comes, 
sometimes excessive restrictions on the type of activities you can do. It may apply to the amount of leverage that you can use um, in executing a strategy. So maybe you can't borrow enough and, and you know, there are strategies, especially with uh, fixed income um, and other investments that, that really require quite a bit of leverage to make them work. Um, or there are just some investments that you can't hold really in a public vehicle. There's also the liquidity issue, right? What you're paid for in the private investments is the illiquidity. So, you know, it's, it's appealing on the public side that you have uh, liquidity with the investments, but what comes with that liquidity is volatility. So these things are priced on a daily basis in the open market. Uh, whereas the private investments, you know, you'll get a statement typically quarterly on the net asset value of the investment versus what the public um, is going to assign for a value in the liquid markets. So, for example, let's, let's just use COVID and the, and the drastic turndown in the market we had in March. If you take a private REIT, a real estate investment trust, that's a Let's just say this is invested in uh, office buildings and you take a public REIT that's listed on the market that's invested in office buildings. You probably had twice the decline in March in the public vehicle than you did in the private vehicle. In the private vehicle, they did have to go in and reassess and do an appraisal uh, to update the values and uh, write them down where necessary. The public market, they have to do the same, but then the stock price can drop even more than that. So it's, it can trade well below its net asset value as people kind of panic and want to flee the asset. So that's one of the biggest differences between the private and the public side. So I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't. I'm actually covering the compliance officer's job here, but uh, let's talk about the risks and then we'll get into the benefits. So alternatives, Eric, are not for everyone. I think they're highly suited for our ideal client, mm -hmm. barring their situation. But, you know, alternatives usually get restricted to accredited investors or qualified purchasers, which means you have to have a certain net worth or a certain annual income, net worth of a million dollars excluding your house or income $200,000 or annually for the last two years or 300000 joint. Um, so there's some qualifications. And... Interestingly enough, philosophically speaking, they put those rules on there. And a lot of times, some of the best investments are alternatives that the, the people that don't fall those qualifications can't get to, which is kind of sad. But what are the typical risks that we see, Dave, with alternatives that make people shy away or not understand? Right. Well, one of the biggest ones is, is also one of the biggest benefits. And we talked about that. That's illiquidity. So, you know, with an alternative investment, you're typically depending on the type of investment going to be you know expected to lock up the money for a longer period of time um, in the short end of the spectrum a hedge fund might have have your money locked up for a year or two and on the long end you know a real estate investment or a private equity investment uh, might be locked up for say 10 years so you know illiquidity is a risk and then if the you know a market turns down and you might not even be able to get out at the end of that longer period when you expected to get out. So you could have extended illiquidity. Uh, that's a, a risk you take in alternatives where in the, in the liquid markets, maybe at a depressed price, um, you have the ability to always exit. 
another risk is is uh, you know one that most people are aware of, and that's sort of on the manager or operator selection, right? There's there is fraud out there, and so that's something where you want to be very careful and uh, make sure you do your due diligence that you're working with uh, a credible um, and well reputed firm. Absolutely, I mean that can't be understated. We take diligence very very seriously, and we're start out of the gate super cynical with every investment uh, that we look at, right? I mean, you can't, you just can't in these days and times take it for granted that whoever you're talking with is on the up and up, right? Exactly. Let me ask you a question on this. We talk about, or I've heard the term balanced portfolio and, and, you know, diversifying. I think everybody's heard about that. When you're talking alternative investments, what percentage of a portfolio or somebody's investment uh, grand picture, if you will, should alternative investments be compared to regular investments? There's sort of two components to that. I'd say definitely just like any other portfolio, it's no different. You absolutely want a diversified portfolio. So you're not going to throw everything into a single alternative investment. Um, You are going to build diversification. And that could be uh, within a single asset class. You know, you have maybe a bunch of different real estate holdings, or it could be you know broader diversification where it's not just real estate. Okay, I'm diversified. I've got some hedge funds, some real estate, some private equity, um, some private credit. So you definitely want to be diversified. And as far as allocation, that's that's what really depends on the situation uh, of the investor. There are large uh, endowments and pension funds that have significant allocations to alternative investments. Uh, Harvard's endowment, for example, has roughly two thirds of their portfolio dedicated to alternative investments. They only have 26% in public equities and about 6% in uh, in public bonds. So that, you know, that's one end of the spectrum. Uh, you know, the other end of the spectrum, there may be some individual investors that have one or two alternative investments that represent 5% of their portfolio. And I think our happy place is somewhere in the middle there um, with more significant exposure to uh, on the alternative side where you can really um, move the needle with some of the benefits that you're, uh, that you're gaining by participation in the alternative investments. Mm. I think what you said there, Dave, that is probably not going to satisfy Eric's answer here, but it really does depend on the situation, right? So we spend a lot of time with our clients understanding the tax, cash flow, uh, estate planning considerations, and liquidity needs of our clients. Liquidity is one of those things where if you don't plan for it, you're going to need it. But if you plan for it, you'll never need it, right? So you always got to be mindful that even you have to have the liquidity, even the worst case scenario. So it's really dependent on someone's cash flows, uh, their risk tolerance, it's just it's just so dependent on their situation that everyone's a little bit unique, and there's certain people that you would never do it with, right? That's just the that's just how it works. You just have to understand the situation. So in terms of diversifying and the benefits there, what is the benefit of the diversification? Like how does that work? How do how do I statistically look at that or or quantitatively look at the benefits overarching? to my situation, Dave? Well, I think the two biggest sort of factors that you're throwing into the portfolio when you bring, um, you know, ex- when you accept the illiquidity of the alternative investments, the two benefits that you're bringing 
are lower volatility and higher potential returns. So in accepting that illiquidity, you are uh, theoretically paid for that. And that is in, in the form of higher expected returns on those investments. And then as we discussed before, that you know, the volatility of these are not subject to the whims of the public market. They're subject more to the underlying value of the actual assets that they hold. When you add that higher return and that lower volatility asset, as well as a reduced correlation between the stocks and bonds in this third asset class, these alternative investments, you've got a more diversified portfolio with less correlated assets. And you'll see that by adding one of these, you'll, you'll actually see the overall risk profile of the portfolio go down with the return profile of the portfolio going up. And that's the textbook modeling of an alternative investment incorporated, you know, into a portfolio, which sort of goes against conventional wisdom, right? Because you're taught that, you know, risk equals return. So if it's lower risk, it should be lower return or, or vice versa. If it's higher return, I should be taking on higher risk. But that's the beauty of incorporating alternative investments as a diversifier into a diversified portfolio. You're actually doing the opposite and you can increase your return potential and reduce your risk. I would add that on the diversification piece there, that on the traditional asset allocation, uh, you know, you're looking at large cap stocks, small cap, mid caps, you're talking about value stocks and growth stocks. And over time, really, in my belief, it's, it's kind of the ancillary result of technology and ETFs. All of those asset classes have become highly, more highly concentrated than ever before. They don't trade independently of one another anymore. You know, if you buy an S&P 500 ETF, you buy all 500 shares in the split second. It's, it's that fast. So these, all these asset classes are more tightly correlated than ever before. This year is a little unique in that COVID really put, put some pretty big waves in that, in that correlation and everything kind of separated from giant tech and internet to everything else, uh, which is unique, but had you had all your money in airlines, right? You didn't got crushed. If you had all your money in hotels, you'd have got crushed. If you had all your money in giant tech, you'd have done pretty good. So from a diversification standpoint, the alternative asset comes into play to help diversify out that correlation between the different traditional asset classes. Yeah, I agree. And, and even within, you know, within the alternative investments, um, you know, if you look at a standard, you know, classic 60-40 allocation of, you know, stock and bonds, you can do the same thing in alternative investments, right? You can have private equity and hedge funds that are investing on the equity side of the market, representing your you know, equity side of that. And you could have you know, some private credit on the debt side. So you can still build a portfolio sort of as you think of it, but just on the uh, more private illiquid side um, and, and add some alpha there if you can tolerate the illiquidity, which is one of the biggest factors in selecting sort of who's appropriate for alternative investment utilization. It's really like Kyle mentioned, it's a function of liquidity. That's why those large institutions that have such a high allocation to alternatives um, are very illiquid. They're long-term sort of perpetual investors. They're never intending to dip into their principal, right? They just want to keep earning and, you know, they're going to distribute those earnings for, 
you know, their beneficiaries, whether it be an endowment or it be a foundation giving out to charities, but they're never going to touch the principal and they have that long-term view and they don't need the liquidity of the underlying assets, just some income off of it. That's really where these investments shine. So you, you mentioned commodities earlier. Do all things, even like collectibles, fall into that category? That would be different. Collectibles actually is collectibles. Commodities are, you know, more of your. Uh, they actually have crowded fund, Dave. They actually have crowd crowd funds where you can buy into a piece of art now. The internet's made everything possible, Dave. All right, everything you guys are saying it, it sounds pretty amazing. Obviously, it also sounds like there's a ton of possible alternative investments out there. How do I, as a consumer, find out what's best for me and and basically, you know, take a walk down that shopping aisle and and pick and choose what I want? It's a great question, Eric. Yeah. Because <laughs> there are hundreds and hundreds of alternatives, right? In order to, to do it right, you got to do your homework mm -hmm. and the due diligence process because you're going into private private investments. You have to be extremely thorough. We have a very rigorous due diligence process here. Uh, we are looking at a, a <clears throat> private, we're looking at a, a fund right now where it is first trust deeds. And we sent the due diligence question over, over to this fund. And the guy went, this thing's 120 pages long. He goes, you want me to go through all this? I'm like, if you want to be considered, you're going to go through all that. Hmm. And so to do your homework requires time, right? Dave? Yeah, that, it definitely requires time. And, you know, this is one of the sort of hidden costs of, you know, participating in alternative investments. But the, there's nothing more important than the diligence that you do up front. Um, and then, you know, staying on top of communication with different managers that you end up, uh, partnering with. So on the diligence, Dave, what, what are the high level pieces that we make sure we check the box on every time? Yeah, well, so we're going to, you know, we're going to look into the operator's track record, um, you know, what they're doing and how they've done it. Uh, we're going to look into the management team. That's, you know, with extensive interviews with the team, we're doing reference checks with the team, we're doing background checks on the team. We're looking at the portfolio that they're invested in, portfolios they previously invested in, the structure of their investment, make sure that, you know, the fees are, you know, all in line with, uh, with norms and that um, there, there's good alignment with investor uh, interests, right? You do not want to have fees where managers are incentivized to do anything other than what's best for the client. So we, we really focus on alignment of interest when we're looking at the structure uh, of the, of the entity and of the fees. Uh, you know, I believe I mentioned, we take a, a, you know, look at their track record. We look at uh, competition, what other funds in their space are doing. Uh, we look at the market environment of their space and and for their strategy, right? Is it is it a good time to be getting into um, a strategy like this? So it's really um, it's it's very comprehensive. Uh, it's a lengthy process. Nobody nobody uh, really likes going through it, but everybody understands that you know uh, the diligence is required. If they don't, then that's probably uh, that's probably a, an indicator right there. So, you know, you know it's it very important to be thorough with the diligence you do um, on alternative. Dave, investments. I'd add CapEx structure in there for sure. Uh, how many entities, right? So with credit funds, a lot of times it's, we call it easy to hide the football. 
we don't like the football hidden. So uh, you got to show us where the football is at. What's the football? Uh, you know, I mean, on a private credit piece, if they borrow money from here and then they they take they take investor money in this in this entity and then they roll it up into another entity, which is the lending entity. But they don't want to show you that entity. You don't want to be any part of that because gotcha. that's, we want that's where the money is. Yeah, you want full transparency and you and to the alignment of the fees. Cannot you know you have to have alignment with the fees with us. You just you can't have it the other way. I've seen a lot of deals that look great. People bring them to us and they're like, "Hey, look at this this, this commercial office space partnership that I can get into." And you take a look at it, and it's your classic OPM type strategy where they're using other people's money, your money, and they don't have any skin in the game. And yet they want on the upside, they want fifty or sixty percent of the ups. And that tells me you're taking a lot of risk with someone else's money and you need to have 10 or 15% in that deal. And then it probably needs to be an 80% to the client, 20% to the, to the fund manager. Right? So it sounds great. And, but that's, that just is incentive for that person to take risk because it's, they don't have anything in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alignment's an easy one to check off the list. Um, yeah, but it it's a, it's a critical one. It really is critical. You're talking about how many are out there and sorting through them. Let me, let me just step back a little and, and just talk about um, sort of availability. And, you know, I view the alternative investments personally as, as fun. I enjoy this space because they're more interesting and, and some of the, you know, some of the return profiles are just incredible. Um, but as a registered investment advisor, an independent firm like we are, uh, I feel we have the best access to, you know, the sort of the broadest range of alternative investments. It used to be something that was um, sort of set aside and access was exclusive to the ultra uh, high net worth world and to, you know, uh, large institutions like, you know, pensions and endowments and things like that. But uh, it has really become um, much more democratized and much more available, especially as the migration away from brokerage firms into the registered investment advisor space. Uh, all of the managers of alternatives have realized that they need to cater to our kind in order to maintain assets because the, that's just the way that the market is shifting. So we have availability of anything from boutique, small firms that um, you know the large firms aren't going to have, as well as we have access to all of the largest firms. I've got a guy at you know any one of the largest firms you can think of right now, the largest alternative investment managers in the world at Blackstone, at BlackRock, uh, Goldman Sachs. There's they're a phone call away to all these guys, and we have access to everything on their platform. The same that they do if you know you're a captive uh, client of Goldman Sachs, we can get the same thing from Goldman Sachs that they can, but then we can get all of the world of investments that they don't have access to that aren't approved by Goldman Sachs. So I feel like we have access to, you know, the broadest range of alternatives that you're going to find in the market. And then, you know, now we're able to deliver them to our end clients that aren't necessarily that massive uh, pension fund or foundation. We can take those benefits that used to be exclusive and deliver them to our clients on a very uh, customized um uh, basis with, you know, portfolios that are tailored to their specific situation. As Kyle talked about, it's going to vary on a client by client basis, but you can really solve some very interesting problems 
with alternative investments. Not only the type of investments that you choose, and uh, this, is, this is sort of outside the scope of this conversation, but in the sort of wrappers that you put them in. First, we're talking about selecting investments, whether they're for income, if you've got private credit and you want to earn you know, much higher levels of income than are available in the public markets, but those are taxed at a very uh, inefficient way, right? The interest income is ordinary income. So we want to look at the kind of vehicles that we can put those investments in that shelter them from taxation, whether that be, you know, this goes into an IRA and we have to get a, um, you know, a specialized custodian to put private investments in an IRA for you, or whether that's something that ends up in, um, you know, private placement life insurance, one of the topics on our previous podcast. So, you know, it gets really interesting when you talk about where you're going to put all of these diverse uh alternative investments that you have available to you. When you combine an ideal alternative investment with an ideal sort of wrapper or you know investment ve- investment vehicle that you're putting it inside of, uh, you can really get some outstanding results. Couldn't agree more with you, Dave, there. So let me give a, an example of a client I have. Uh, she comes from a very wealthy family. The family did pretty extensive estate planning she is the beneficiary of a trust. She leaves a lot of the assets in this trust for asset protection reasons. And that ass and that trust kicks off million, five, million, six of income to her, and it's all passive income because it's a trust. And so for her, she's getting taxed out the wazoo on a bunch of passive income, and she doesn't necessarily take the income out. And so she's sitting on some cash and we said, hey, look, look at this real estate syndication. It's going to create a bunch of passive losses because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act allowed for cost segregation to accelerate a bunch of depreciation. We can go down this on another day. But basically, the investment, while it's going to perform really well on an income side, creates a bunch of tax benefits because of depreciation. That depreciation, she got to match against her income, her passive income from the trust. And so it was a home run for her because you know, she put 200 grand in or whatever the case was, but the government basically subsidized 30, 40% of it because of the taxation piece of it. So that's how we kind of wrap it together specifically for each one of our clients. You know, we really look at their situation, look at their tax returns, look at what's going on, look at the entity structures, and then we find the most optimal solution to marry up with their situation to not only create better diversification and increase those uh, the asymmetry of the risk reward metrics and all that jazz, but also to improve the tax situation as well. And that, that's one of the benefits of the alternative investments as well as we can be more flexible with the uh, taxation. So depending on the investments that you're using, right, we can get things that are really, um, you know, efficient from a tax front, whether they have the deductions that Kyle was talking about or, you know, they're they're deferred for long term and they're, they end up being, uh, you know, long-term capital gains, and they don't really throw off any income in the meantime. Uh, there are a lot of different profiles uh, from a taxation standpoint of the different alternative investments. And again, marrying those different um, attributes up uh, appropriately for a client situation um, can really deliver some outstanding results when done correctly. Yeah, guys, this has been a fantastic podcast. Obviously, it's extremely complicated when it comes to choosing, determining, knowing what's best for, uh, you know, a specific individual or myself as a consumer, it would, it's complicated, but that's what you guys are for. 
So people that are listening to this podcast thinking, hey, this is something that I'd like to look at. Uh, I'd rather not be in the stock market as much as I am. I'd like to diversify into something different. How do they get a hold of you or who should they reach out to to start this conversation to see if alternative investments are right for them? Well, you can just go to our webpage, you know, centaurawealth.com. Uh, you can call us. You can email us. We're available any of the traditional ways that every other firm is. So reach out to us when you can. In terms of collectibles, like you were talking about, uh, I might have to pick your brain, Eric, on that. What was that chime that you were talking about? Oh, the that's a Patek Philippe watch. It's absolutely beautiful. Oh, the watch. Took yeah. seven years to create, and it's only $2.6 million. Well, originally it was. I think it's gone up. <laughs> so if, if the audience wants to talk about that, you might have to reach out to Eric. <laughs> <laughs> but to do that, go to uh, Centura Wealth Advisory's webpage. And what, what's that webpage again, Kyle? www.centurawealth.com. Perfect. Guys, any closing thoughts for today? One thing I do want to point out, and you know, this is sort of a, a plug, but not really intended to be. It's in this space a lot. You know, a lot of people do it on their own when it comes to investing. They say, "Hey, I'm just going to do passive. I'm, you know, putting X, Y, Z in the market, and I'm just letting it go." In the alternative spaces, I think where you really need to lean on an advisor, and there's for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, access, uh, because of you know all of the different connections that we have and the sort of supply chains for alternative investments, that's the sort of a, a funnel of where you can find uh, access to alternative investments is through an advisor. And B, it's leaning on the diligence that we do because there is a lot of work involved in choosing those and, and you don't want to do it, um, you know, willy-nilly without doing that work. So I think especially in the alternative space is where you really do want to work through an advisor where you can, you know, have options presented to you and that you know that they've you know all passed rigorous diligence as well. Absolutely. All right, guys, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. You bet. And of course, the last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. 
past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.